Welcome to week four of the Oxford Transitional Justice Seminar Series. Um, I know we're in the heart of Trinity Term, so thanks everyone for coming out. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce Marcy Mursky. She's the program director at the International Center for Transitional Justice, which she's just explained to me. It involves a variety of responsibilities crossing various regions and thematic teams. So she's got you know, a lot of um, different areas of expertise there. Um, she'll be speaking to us today on the view from the Latin American oh, challenges for TJ, the view from the Latin American experience. Um, Marcy um, has been um, living and working in Guatemala um, for the 25 years prior to um, joining ICTJ, so she comes to us with a wealth of in-country knowledge and on-the-ground experience. Um, I'm just going to briefly touch upon some of Marcy's many accomplishments before I let her introduce um, uh, the Latin American case. Uh, before joining ICTJ, Marcy was a senior political officer for the UN on the Commission of Inquiry into the Assassination of Benedira Bhutto, and she was also um, involved um, extensively on the International Commission Against Impunity in Guatemala, um, which was a UN-sponsored investigatory commission um, embedded within Guatemala's domestic legal system and tasked um, with investigating um, organized crime and links between current and past impunity. Prior to her work at the UN, Marcy um, directed the Access to Justice program of the Soros Foundation in Guatemala, and um, perhaps best known for her pivotal role in several of Guatemala's transitional justice mechanisms, she um, was extensively working on both truth commissions. Um, she was a uh, field director of one of the um, CEH's field offices for the Guatemalan um, UN-mandated truth commission, the Historical Clarification Commission and she later served as coordinator of the commission's final report. She also helped design and lead Guatemala's other truth commission, which was founded by the Catholic Church, known as the Recovery of Historical Memory Project, or REMI. And she helped design and manage the first phase of that report, um, and also um, was extensively involved in taking testimony from victim survivors. Apart from her extensive policy work, she has authored um, numerous publications in both English and Spanish on the subject of human rights. And um, some of her work includes um, History as an Instrument of Social Reparation, Reflections on an Experience in Guatemala, as well as um, a very incisive Guatemalan case study um, in Victims on Silence, published by the Due Process of Law Foundation. So um, it's certainly a privilege to have her with us today. And so I'll just turn it over to you, Marcy. Thank you very much, Emily. Thank all of you for coming out on a rainy afternoon and a busy time. And it really is an honor to be with you and to have this chance to what I hope will be a very interesting discussion um, of some of these issues. In fact, I'm ending my comments with three open questions that I hope you can help me to answer, or at least to find ways that we might begin to answer them together across these disciplines. Um, I wanted to talk a bit about Latin America because it's what I know and because it offers more than 30 years of experience in the struggle for accountability and has made use of what have, been come, have come to be known as transitional justice mechanisms, including truth-seeking, reparations, criminal prosecutions, memorials, and institutional reform, especially of security forces and judiciaries. So it offers a window into a variety of processes over a long period of time in a set of countries that share some common processes, um, each in a unique way. I want to locate my comments, too, uh, in this way. I will speak as a practitioner and sometimes as an activist. 
Um, and so my focus will be on transitional justice really as accountability. Um, as, um, because account it was a drive for accountability that drove the processes in the region from the perspective of activists and victims. So I'll have more of a focus on accountability than on a broader policy focus that examines transitional justice and its potential contribution to building civic trust and democratization. So I'm going to keep the eye on, on the other on the flip side of, of this. And when I refer to accountability, of course, I'm not reducing this to putting people in jail. And I always say to people, I'm all for it, but I don't think it's enough. Um, but it is an important piece of what's happened in the region, region or what's happening now. Um, and I will focus my comments mostly on truth-seeking, a bit on prosecutions, as well as on the relationship between the two. And I'll be very happy in the discussion period afterwards, if you like, to talk a little bit more about reparations or some of the institutional reform that's gone on in the region as well, if you have questions about that or particular interests. And I thought I'd frame my comments today in three really big overarching lessons that um, I hope are irrefutable. <laughs> one never knows, especially in this kind of context. One is, um, one big overarching um, lesson is that the issues don't disappear by decree, by amnesty, or by official neglect that these crimes were so egregious that they tore through the basic ethical fabric of the countries and as a result do not disappear. That's one. There are so many attempts to make them go away, to make the issues um, stop. But in fact that hasn't been the case. The second overarching lesson, I think, is that civil society organizations and their creativity played an enormous role in moving these processes forward, and moving transitional justice processes forward. That is, without a significant degree of organizational fabric or organizational uh, networks and strength, it's difficult to imagine how the processes would have progressed. And when I talk about civil society organizations, I think it's important to note that in a first period, those were mostly human rights organizations and victims groups. Later, um, more specialized groups emerged, such as forensic anthropology groups, organizations working for justice reform, universities, law schools, professional organizations. But in the beginning, it was really very much human rights organizations and, uh, and victims groups. And I also wanted to make special mention of the Catholic Church. And I know this is probably going to... The Catholic Church, and I've grown even more to appreciate the role of the Catholic Church in um, the search for accountability in Latin America as I've begun to work in regions where there is no Catholic Church, where there is not that structure um, that really moves, that, that gives a certain consistency to um, networks uh, from community to community and where there was, at least in Latin America at the time, with a few exceptions, a fairly significant emphasis by the church on um, the dignity of each person and on people's rights. The Catholic Church was a big player throughout the region in moving these processes forward in its own way in many cases. And the third um, overarching lesson that I wanted to mention, and here I speak more as an activist, is that the social, political, and institutional processes that are required to achieve accountability generally do not happen at the speed of our dreams, 
or the speed of our aspirations or of our needs. They tend to be slow processes that take time to mature, that involve many factors, and they never go as fast or as fully as we'd like them to. Um, I wanted to see, so that's, those are kind of the big framing issues. I won't refer to them necessarily directly, but wanted to put them on the table as kind of some of the guiding things that um, I think about when I think about transitional justice in the region and how the process has moved, what we've got out of the last 30 years. I wanted to ask you if I need to, if it would be helpful, I don't know how many of you know Latin America and those particular processes, if it would be good to characterize the transitions in Latin America that I'm talking about, um, or is everybody basically conversant on? It's really quite mixed. It's quite mixed. I'll go through really quickly. I'll take three or four minutes just to sort of say some very basic things, very basic things about these transitions. First, that they begin to place them in time. They begin really in the mid-1980s in some countries, a little bit earlier in others. Um, in others, we're talking really more about the 90s or early, or even the, the, in the, into, the, into the new century. In virtually all of these transition processes, the militaries to continue to be very strong and to play a major role in the country's political and economic life, as did other political and economic forces that supported the previous authoritarian and repressive regimes. So they weren't clean transitions. They weren't from one to the other. They were general, very, very um, conditioned and controlled um, processes with lots of um, power remaining from previous, um, from previous regimes. Um, virtually all of the transitions in Latin America um, happened uh, or in, involved uh, far-reaching amnesties in the first years. So that it's a part of the transition from one political regime to another, even with lots of holdovers from the past, amnesty played a part in them. This was the case, obviously, in Brazil, Chile, Uruguay, Peru, El Salvador, Argentina, after some initial truth-seeking and high-level trials, Guatemala at the beginning of its transition with a very broad amnesty, and later after the peace accords with a somewhat narrow amnesty. Um, but. So there, those, that was a, um, an initial component of virtually all of the processes. Now most of those amnesties have been overcome. Some have been annulled. In other countries like Chile, the national courts have found a way to prosecute, avoiding the terms of the, outside of the terms of the amnesties. Um, and in all throughout the entire region, the inter-American human rights system, both the inter-American commission and the inter-American court, have played extremely valuable roles in this process of overcoming the amnesties in the region. Um, there are two outliers. It's kind of an odd, significant outliers, I think, or not, not entirely. Um, both one of the largest country, the largest country in the region, and one of the smallest, Brazil and El Salvador, still have amnesties in place. Have tried really no one, no significant trials. Um, and very little, um, but also some differences. Brazil has had a massive um, reparations program and is beginning a truth commission. I think the commissioners were named a couple of days ago, and they'll start to work soon, and maybe one day there'll be trials. El Salvador is a process unto itself where there was, um, I think, probably a political, uh, where the social contract between the parties especially was very, very strong about the need to 
uh, try and close the door on the past and move forward from the war. But anyway, there are, there, there are outlier countries in the process where things have happened in a different way. So that's what I wanted, just a little bit of framework, that, um, that although um, most of the countries went through these periods of authoritarianism rule, the process about how they got to the next stage is a little bit different. Um, in some places there were more kind of um, very tenuous or drawn out uh, processes of return to constitutional rule. In some cases the UN was involved in brokering peace arrangements. But, for the most part, they had they shared the things in common that I mentioned. Um, and I wanted to move now with that background um, to talk a little bit about uh, truth versus justice. Um, and I think the Latin American experience has shown that what in the early years of the transitional processes in the region appeared to be a sure trade-off of truth versus criminal justice has proven to be a false dilemma, or at least not an inherent or natural one. It has been false that the search for truth via non-judicial mechanisms such as truth commissions means that there will be no justice in the courts. This may seem very apparent now, like of course. Um, but at the time, um, in the 1980s and 1990s, this was very, very far from the case. Um, and it is certainly um, also the case that the process has not been simple or automatic so that while it has turned out to be a false dilemma, it was through human agency, through the actions of many people that kept it from being that, that contradiction between truth and justice, truth and criminal justice. Um, and much of the transitional justice processes or the struggle for accountability in Latin America began with truth-seeking at the beginning of a transition, although there are exceptions, like I said, in the case of Brazil, which is beginning a truth commission now after doing a very large reparation program, um, and it's doing its truth commission now almost 30 years after uh, the return to democracy or to constitutional rule. There are several reasons why these processes began with truth. Um, I have about five, I think. I wanted to share. They're not particularly earth-shattering, but um, I think we can think about these reasons as, um, one, the first was because prosecution was not possible simply not possible. Um, there were amnesties and tenuous relationships with the militaries, very weak justice institutions, um, or the courts were clearly aligned with the previous regime. A second reason was that there was a demand for truth to challenge the denial by the state. That the crimes, the, the, the denial by the state, the crimes had not happened or that the state had no responsibility in them. And that, again, may seem like, of course, but at the time it wasn't. And I can tell you that um, in Guatemala in the 1970s, for example, um, the newspaper's stories of the disappeared was, no one knows what happened to them. There were unknown men who came and took them away. It was the hombres desconocidos who came and took them away. Um, no one would ever know. And the initial years of organization by families that disappeared, the state often responded to them by, um, in, in public statements by saying that they were crazy. That people had must, must have gone off to Mexico to live a better life. That there was no problem of the disappeared. Denial was deep and it was all pervasive from the state. So that truth was important as a way of challenging 
um, denial by the state and through that challenge of its denial, in some ways challenging the power of the state. The second reason, a third reason. In Latin America, part of the patterns of criminality by the state involved is forced disappearances. Forced disappearance is a crime that, in which denial by the state is implicit. It's an inherent part of um, disappearance. That a person is taken and simply never consigned to the courts legally um, and is never heard of again. There's a, there's an, an inherent part of denial, state denial, in the act of forced disappearance. And since there were so many of those disappearances, of disappearances in Latin America, um, the, the attempt to find information about what had happened to the disappeared and about the crime itself, to reveal the crime itself and then to determine what had happened was a key part of moving towards accountability. A fourth reason had to do with the massive nature of the violations, which is so many crimes. So many crimes and justice systems that really, even in the best of, even if they had been operational, which they were not in many cases, would have been very difficult for them to um, handle. And a fifth reason is really the inaccessibility of the justice system for many victims and their families, especially if they were poor. It's very expensive to go to court. So in many ways, um, and I want to lay out a, something of a paradox here, Truth commissions were, in many ways, um, a creative response to these concrete conditions by activists, victims, families, and some of the, the committed political actors who accompanied them in this journey toward truth, toward seeking truth. Um, yet at the same time, and this is the paradox, <laughs> in general in the region, as these processes began, truth commissions were often seen by activists as second-rate justice or as a totally insufficient measure of the possible, something that was only worth doing because of the political impossibility of judicial action, or even the legal impossibility because of the amnesty laws that were still in effect in many of the countries at the time. So second-rate justice, it was something that was possible, but if anything else had been possible, we would have done that instead. And I would say, too, that one of the interesting things that's happened over time has been that that sense of truth-seeking as um, second-rate justice has diminished. And I'll talk in a few minutes about some of the value or the, um, the understanding of truth as a good in and of itself that has come out of this experience. In terms of this second-rate justice, even in Argentina, some victims' groups opposed the creation of the commission there, which was called CONADEP, the National Commission uh, on the Disappeared, it's focused entirely, and they feared that its work might serve as, at, uh, as an alternative to trials, which had yet to begin there. This was before the amnesty, and before the punto final, and before the indultos, and all the rest. So it was really a first step with the, with, in fact, Alfonsín um, decreed the formation of, the, of CONADEP within a week of his taking office. So it was very, very early on in that process, but victims' groups um, demonstrated against it, um, fearing that it would be instead of trials, even though the mandate said clearly that that would not be the case. And certainly in Guatemala, where activists demanded truth, um, there were deep criticisms of the mandate that eventually established the Truth Commission there. So there was a, a general tendency in the region to be very critical of these and to say this is not what we want. 
Um, there have now been nine significant official truth commissions in the region. There'll be ten with Brazil. All of them were established by some kind of legal instrument, um, a presidential de decree, legis legislative act, or even formal peace accords, as in the case of El Salvador and Guatemala. In each instant, the resulting mandate was produced as a political agreement, which implies that they are always a compromise. Thus, the mandates that were agreed were always imperfect, fully imperfect, leaving the commissions with less than ideal powers Less and less than those that might have been legitimately demanded by victims and by their act and by activists and by the societies at large, in fact. But despite these limitations, the commissions have generally produced valuable reports. And I wanted to lay out why I think they've been valuable, because I know some people here are asking questions about these. Many people here are actually asking questions about these. So I wanted to lay out a few reasons why I think they've been valuable. One, and it's maybe the simplest, but it's very important, and what that is because they were able to demonstrate, they have been able to demonstrate the lies behind state denial. And as I said, state denial is one of the principal objectives of doing this. So if we take them at what was their principal objective when they began, which was not necessarily to change the world, but just to really challenge denial, then their reports and their work have been important successes, had an important dimension of success. Um, the second um, element of their value is that they validated the experience of victims and made victims visible and brought them to the table like nothing had done in the region before. And they have opened the way to criminal prosecutions. Again, rather than closing the door, they open the door. And I'll come back to this and try and explain a little bit about that um, a little bit further on. But those, to me, are three of the greatest values um, of the commissions in the region. The success of these commissions in these terms is owed in large measure beyond the efforts of the commissions and the staff, which is important, I must say, having been a staff member. To, but in large measure, it's owed to um, efforts by civil society and those um, efforts and contributions involved um, their participation in debates on the design of the mandates um, and what should be done by the commissions by providing documentation and contacts with victims invaluable. Our commission, in the official commission, would have been an utter failure without the contacts um, that were provided to us by civil society organizations to victims, an utter failure within the time frame we had to work. They also, um, civil society organizations, um, lobby for improvements in methodology and insist do this better. You're not listening to these people well. You're taking bad statements. You're not doing all kinds of things come to you. Um, and that's very important in improving how you work. And oftentimes, civil society, especially in the more recent experiences, civil society groups may have more knowledge of what other truth commissions have done otherwhere, other places than the commissioners themselves, and can bring some of that experience um, through exchanges and all the rest to, to those commissions. So the success of these and the terms that I've mentioned um, depended in large measure on, on uh, civil society contributions. Um, I also wanted to mention that there's been a significant evolution uh, of truth commissions in Latin America since the first one in Argentina in 1984. And this evolution, though at least the piece I'm, focus, I'm focusing on, is from having a quite limited, limited investigative objectives to much broader ones. 
Um, the first commissions in Argentina in 84, CONADEP, was directed to investigate the facts related only to disappearances and to establishing the fate of each individual of the crime of disappearance. So it was a, a, a single um, violation. In Chile, eight years later, which was the next major truth commission in the region in 1991, the mandate of the Truth Commission was again focused on disappearances, although it also permitted investigations into other serious human rights violations, but only those that had led to the death of the victim. This effectively excluded the thousands of victims of torture, for example, and other grave crimes who survived their ordeals. So very narrow, very narrow mandates in the beginning. Later truth commissions, such as El Salvador in 1994, was able, a later, such as Salvador, was able to investigate a much broader range of crimes and violations. And um, both Guatemala and Peru had even broader mandates that allowed them to examine a not only a wide range of human rights violations and infractions of international humanitarian law, but also to establish patterns of violations and identify root causes of the conflicts. Indeed, the commission where I worked in Guatemala, the Commission for Historical Clarification, was the first truth commission in Latin America and probably anywhere in the world to include as part of its work a critical analysis of the country's history and social structure. This historical focus, which identified political and economic exclusion and racism as the underlying causes of the conflict and of authoritarian rule, was one of the most novel contributions of that commission. In general, since then, this focus on history has been very important in the Latin American context and in other places to, uh, to, to address underlying injustices, exclusions, and other things that fed the conflict. So you have this great broadening of the mandate. And I actually, in thinking about this, I went back and read a wonderful paper by Juan Mendez from 1997 on the right to truth. It's really a, a lovely sort of summary of what was going on at the time. And he commented on the Guatemalan Truth Commission that was just beginning then. And he says, this is just beginning, and it has this strange mandate that allows it to do historical clarification and look at root causes. I'm not sure that's a good idea. Um, and in the end, it turned out to be one of the great strengths of this commission, um, without a doubt, and one of the things that was within the very limited mandate it had in other regards, um, in terms of naming names, in terms of um, its time frame, um, by, having been, by being able to look at the root causes, it was able to make a unique contribution that, others, that other bodies there hadn't been able to do. So out of this experience in the region, I wanted to try and identify ways in which truth commissions contribute to truth and, and to materializing the right to truth, which may actually be more effective than trials and the courts around the truth. Okay. And probably these are all written in different places as well, but I put them together this way. One is, as I said before, they help counter negation and establish the facts of what happened in specific cases and also in a broader range of events. That's what they can do. They allow victims' voices to enter the public sphere and to be heard by an official, legitimate, and legitimating body. Um, and in fact, this is one of the things that probably makes them different from a standard commission of inquiry, and kind of a legislative or parliamentary commission of inquiry, wouldn't normally do that in the same way. For me, it's one of the defining characteristics of a truth, what makes a truth commission different from a commission of inquiry. 
Um, the third thing that, the uh, third way in which they contribute to truth. They are an excellent tool for establishing patterns of violations over a specific period of time. Um, and then one that's particularly important to me um, in the region and um, that they, can de demonstrate that they can demonstrate that the viola violations resulted not from the actions of a few bad men and their excesses, but rather from policies, institutions, and structures that require deep reform. And to me, that's the, the core of what makes them interesting compared to, to trials. The trials tend, even though I always say to my lawyer friends, trials are great, just I don't think they're the only thing. It's not what I'm interested in. Um, because I think you can easily um, provide a message of it was these five bad men. Um, and if we just put them away, problem solved. Problem not solved. I mean, one of the big challenges in our, in our commission was to really deal, to engage with the um, rhetoric at the time that there had been excesses committed. So that the state had gone from, by that time, the military had gone from um, total denial, from, from total denial, say, of the massacres, to saying, well, yes, maybe some of those things happened, but they were just the excesses of a few bad commanders. And so part of the challenge was to um, question that. Is it the case that these were excesses by a few bad commanders? Or was there, an, or were these in fact patterns of behavior across the entire country across a very long time, long time frame in separate administ military administrative zones? And clearly they were. So this is one thing I think where um, it's much, there's a much richer possibility of understanding what happened than even um, a series of successive trials can give you. Another aspect of um, the ways in which truth commissions contribute that may be more effective than trials is that they can work with methodologies that do not need to follow the strict rules of evidence in order to demonstrate the truth of what happened. There's a much richer array of methodologies available, drawing from the social sciences, from quantitative studies, that allow you, that don't have to abide by a very, narrow, a very narrow notion of the truth that comes out of the rules of evidence. Um, and then a final is that they can um, not only identify individual responsibilities, but broader uh, institutional, excuse me, individual responsibilities, but also broader institutional responsibilities as well. Kind of goes back to what I was saying before, it's not just a few bad men, but um, whole institutions that need to be um, and redrawn from the bottom up in some cases. I have to my page numbers today. But, um, and then finally, I think there's one last one here. Um, truth commissions are the kind of broad truth that can be sought through truth commissions can establish well-founded bases for broad reparation programs, which is not possible from individual trials. Trials can provide reparations to the specific victims of the crime that's being tried, but cannot form the basis for a broader uh, administrative reparation program. Um, so those are some of the things I wanted to reflect on in terms of the, 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 the kind of the materialization of the right to truth through truth commissions. I'm going to say too that um, commissions were also often seen in some places, um, in some places by the governments as a way to allow a, a look quickly at what happened, but then to close the book straight off. 
So, okay, we'll sit, um, to say that's enough and only look forward. But we'll open the book quickly, close it in 16, 18, 20 months, and say, oops, book closed, that's done, on we go. Um, however, this generally didn't happen in Latin America. And what we found instead was that truth commissions, even though they began as second-rate justice, oftentimes were the opening of the book rather than the closing of the book. Um, and in the majority of cases, help pave the way for prosecutions later. Um, and this has been the case um, because once the essential facts were established through these non-judicial means with broader, broader methodologies available to them to establish the truth, it, be, it made it much more difficult for the state to deny them, and in turn made amnesties less politically sustainable in some places. In, other case, in, in, in addition, in other situations, such as in Guatemala, information from truth commissions have been used and accepted as documentary evidence in the courts, or in the case of Peru, there was, even a special, there was, a, there was a formal agreement between the truth commission and the public prosecutor to share information and the Truth Commission there included a special unit that prepared cases specifically to be handed over to the prosecutor for criminal action. So there have been all kinds of arrangements, and that was probably the most um, specific. CONADEP also had a very specific arrangement to hand over cases. In fact, it was mandated to hand over anything it found that might have criminal implications immediately to judicial authorities. Peru picked that up uh, again almost uh, two decades later. Um, as its form of operations. The criminal cases being tried in Latin America over the past 10 to 15 years and even now occurred in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, over 30 years ago in some cases. Um, and I'll come back to this. I, some of the people who are at lunch today know that I'm musing about what it means to, to try people 30 years later. But um, in Argentina, since the amnesty was overturned in 2000. Oh, five. At the end of last year, this is the last time I updated my statistics, 17,000 people had been charged. Um, there had been, by that time, 180 convictions, with a group of officers with great responsibility in disappearances and torture having been given life sentences in, in October. I'll come back to that case just because it, it, it does reflect one of the challenges in the region that I want to pose at the end, one of my open questions at the end. In Chile, since the year 2000, even with an amnesty law in, case, in place, there are 1,400 active cases. There have been 777 convictions as of the end of last year, with more than 70 in prison. Um, that, the difference between the conviction and the number in prison um, is because they've mostly given suspended sentences in Chile for a variety of political reasons. They've chosen that route for the most part. Um, in Guatemala, there's even in Guatemala where the justice system was infinitely weaker than in Chile or Argentina at the beginning of the conflict and at the end. But even in Guatemala, there are now dozens of people in prison under arrest, awaiting trial, or already convicted. And in July of last year, um, the first case on genocide against uh, a former head of state and high-level military people was opened and continues and should be heard this year if things go well. Uh, in addition to cases on disappearances, massacres, and others. Um, uh, one of the issues here, too, and this is just, I just want to say it and then we can come back to it, but um, this means that transitional justice processes through this whole period 
while they began as part of political transitions, have often continued well after the political transition is over. Firmly believe the political transition is over in Argentina. It's over in Chile, it's over in Guatemala. These are just normal countries, as I said before, kind of living their, their lives and, and moving forward in their own way. Um, but what we know is transitional justice mechanisms, um, specifically whether it be truth-seeking in the case of Brazil, reparations programs that continue on in a number of places, or trials in the countries I've just mentioned, they're all post-transitional countries, in my point of view. So I'm not sure exactly what that means. It just means that these probably just means that these processes, actually the justice processes in some ways, are longer than the political processes. Which is not to mean that the political processes have been perfect or that they've come to some resolved situation. Just that it doesn't make sense to think of them as transitional any longer in my framework. But I'd be open to challenges on that point and, and discussion. So, um, and this is certainly not an ideal situation. Um, it's too long, it takes too long, um, especially for the justice system to work. Law enforcement and judicial institutions have shown themselves in the region and elsewhere to be quite conservative in nature and resistant to change, perhaps the most resistant to change of any institution in the region. Again, open to challenge, but it's, you know, it's, it's a good place to say these things. And as we know, as we all know, these things um, take the, to move forward with the, with the justice system takes a combination of political will and technical capacity. This takes time to happen, um, for the institutions to mature, for ideologies to diminish, and for a new generation of legal professionals and activists to emerge. So long-term processes that can take longer than the actual settling in of the transition. So I wanted to end with a few um, kind of, of the challenges I see, um, or you can pose them also as open questions um, that emerge from the experience in the region. The first I've already mentioned and raised today earlier um, with some of you, which is what does it mean to hold trials 30 to 35 years after the events occurred, when the perpetrators are generally quite old, as are the victims? Um, and who cares about these proceedings beyond the victims and their advocates? And what do we know about that? And what does it mean, especially in nations of young people, where the population curve is very much swayed toward, or toward um, very young people born long after the wars. What does it mean in those societies um, with scarce resources for the justice system to focus on these very complex and trying cases? And then what does it mean to the legal profession itself? What does it mean to them to be able to do these cases? A lot of questions about um, uh, if we think about what the impacts of criminal justice or what we, what we, what we hope to achieve through um, criminal justice systems, what does it mean to do this 30 years later? Does it have the same potential impact as it might have had five or 10 years after the fact, which is still a lot of time because justice is supposed to be prompt um, to be effective. So what does it mean to have it happen three decades later? Um, in a, and I'm, I'm quite convinced that those will be kind of culturally um, and contextually respond. The answers will be contextual, cultural, culturally determined in some ways. In different places, they might mean different things. But I do think it's something that it would be great to have um, 
some students, professors, group of people actually doing um, real polling, serious work, or not just polling, but trying to really get at those questions beyond the victims and the activists for whom, whom it is very, very important that this is happening. What do other people think? A second uh, issue that has emerged more recently is now that there can be trials in a number of places, how can a justice system, which tend to still be somewhat weak and meager, or even if they were robust, how can they handle the enormous, enormous burden or virtual impossibility of prosecuting everyone? So, this is a situation that is being confronted in Argentina and Chile, where there are relatively small numbers of perpetrators, even though they're in the thousands. We think about Colombia, which is just beginning to take on some of these issues in some ways. We're talking about some 400,000 registered victims um, and thousands of perpetrators at different levels. And even in Guatemala, um, people talk of several hundred to several thousand cases that could eventually be brought. Um, in these legal systems, prosecutors do not have the legal option of not investigating um, these crimes. That is to say, they do not have, um, within their legal structures, there's no um, the possibility of prosecutorial selection. They sometimes depend a little bit on the laws creating the systems, um, whether they can actually prioritize their investigations. Sometimes even that needs legislative um, backing to be able to do it, but they cannot select cases and drop others from investigation by law. I mean, they've done that for years, but it's been, it's been illegal. It's been an indicator of the lack of operancy of these systems. Um, just to take um, Argentina, um, the ESMA case, which I mentioned, the one that happened in October, or one where the, the convictions came in October, um, beyond the years, the, the many years of building the evidence, once the case was formally opened, it took 22 months for a team of 15 on the part of the state. Um, it convicted 16 people, uh, 12 to life sentences, each one of those convicted with their own lawyer, um, with 86 victims, again, each one, groups of them with lawyers. So how do you even manage the courtroom? <laughs> with that many um, parties involved? How do you manage the data? How do you manage the information? How do you remember, how does a judge remember what they heard 22 months earlier to be able to come to a judgment? So that, that is the, the, the challenges of handling these phenomenally complex cases um, in and of itself is a, is a new challenge that has emerged now, I think, um, once the trials have become possible. In Argentina, again, just because we spoke recently to the um, prosecutor in charge of these cases, there are 793 remaining cases with individual victims um, and 60 separate accused still. Um, one option that they're exploring, but they have to get a, a legal basis for doing it, they don't have it in their own, within their own law, they want to join um, 24 defendants into a single case where there have been 54 aggravated homicides 
but where there's common evidence that join those different actions um, for a total of 237 victims. They're now calculating that with what they learned from the first process, they could do this in 14 months. And then there would be three more years to get through other cases joined with similar criteria. That's if they get the legal authorization or find some other way within their own legal framework to justify joining these cases in this way. Um, so that probably by the time they get to the end of this process, a number of the defendants will have died and probably some of the victims' families as well. So there's both the great complexity of how to handle these massive cases, truly massive cases, um, and then the massive numbers of them uh, with dying um, defendants and dying um, plaintiffs. And in fact, in talking to the prosecutor, she laid out some very straightforward things. Um, a lot of defendants are ill. And so if you join these cases, each time one of them is ill, it stops the entire proceedings. But if they don't join the cases, they will never finish. So it's, it's kind of, so I just wanted to, so even though this has been kind of the dream of activists to be able to do this, the set of issues, the set of complexities for legal professionals, for people having to do these things, is really quite, quite phenomenal. Listening to this one who had been um, a justice activist all of her life and had become a prosecutor in these cases only because she was asked to because no one else wanted to do it <laughs> from the prosecutor's office. And um, having been an advocate for this all her life said, you know, it's phenomenal to have to face um, the challenges of making these actually go forward now. So then um, that's just one, one example. And the final question I wanted to raise um, is also one I'd kind of mentioned in some ways. And it's that while, in, in fact, the measures of transitional justice are based in the rights of victims and really respond to those rights, to truth, to justice, to reparations, to non-recurrence. Um, the real challenge, it seems to me, is while at the same time they need to respond to those um, rights and have victims at the center, they also really need to address and to reach society as a whole. And one of the ways I've thought about um, this dilemma for a long time is the question of how to make these measures more effective in deprivatizing the suffering and the loss. So that while they may be very good at recognizing the suffering and loss of individual victims, how do you go from that to having that understood by the broader society as a loss for the society as a whole? and not only to those individual families. How do you deprivatize um, that acknowledgement? How do you deprivatize that sense of loss? Which in the end is a form of kind of partialization of the society and doesn't really bring it back together. So I'll leave it there and would love to hear comments and questions.